Our sermon text reading comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. There was a certain man of Ramath Zilphim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew, his, knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, brother. Our, this morning we are beginning, or I guess moving to our 
sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. And as we talked about a little bit last week, the book of 1 Samuel depicts one of the, if not the biggest transition period in the history of the nation of Israel. Israel will go from a fledgling nation with weak, seemingly weak tribal connections to a unified kingdom that is under a single, single monarch. It is a significant period in the unfolding history of God's redemption, God's promise and plan to save a people from their sins, a, a promise which began in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is beginning to take shape in a whole new way. A new period in the history of salvation is beginning in the opening pages of 1 Samuel. And if you are writing this story about this monumental occasion in the life of God's people, how would you begin that story? Where would you place the setting of this story. Such an extraordinary moment in history should obviously have an extraordinary beginning. Well, the author of 1 Samuel begins this story by taking us to an unknown, unremarkable, and quite ordinary Israelite home. The writer brings us into the household of an Israelite family, particularly centering on a woman that no one knows and whom Scripture never mentions again. And I think even this, at the beginning of this sermon series, at the beginning of this text, is, is that this is instructive for us because it teaches us that God's plan, His glorious plan to save His people from their sins, his glorious plan to establish a kingdom on the earth, a plan to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring, a plan which includes the renewal of all things, often works itself out in ordinary people and in everyday life. In God's economy, seemingly small beginnings are not to be discounted. God often delights to use the weak and shameful things in order to shame the strong. It is to say that the kingdom of God moves forward in often humble and obscure ways. Jesus declares that the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. It's the smallest of, of seeds, but over time it grows into the biggest of plants. God is building his kingdom in very obscure ways, and he's using a very messy family situation a very dis a distressing but yet faithful woman, and even through an unfaithful priest. And I want us to look at this story and walk through it under three headings that will guide us through the story. I want us to first see a familiar scene. Second thing I want us to see is a faithful servant. And then the last thing I want us to see is a faithful priest. A familiar scene a faithful servant, and then a faithful priest. So first, a familiar scene. The curtain of our text is raised, and we are introduced to three characters. We are first introduced to a man by the name of Elkanah. We are told two things about Elkanah. First, that he is from Rathium Zophim. This is a small town at the very heart of Israel. It's about five miles away from what will later be called Jerusalem. 
And the second thing that we are told about Elkanah is that he has two wives. And of course, this is the first problem that we see in our text. As you read through this story, you'll notice that Elkanah is a godly individual. He attends the temple. He offers sacrifices to the Lord. He is faithful to make sure that that Hannah keeps her vow to the Lord. He seems to have a significant measure of personal piety. But Elkanah's life is significantly and seriously compromised. He is a man who has two wives. Now, in the Old Testament, it's not infrequent to see individuals who later who had multiple wives. We think of Lamech or Abraham, Jacob, and later King Solomon. But the reality is that polygamy has never been a part of the vision that God has for his people. The book of Genesis makes it extremely clear that God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. This definition is later confirmed by Jesus in in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, uh, the king of Israel was forbidden to marry multiple women. The apostle Paul says that marriage between a man and woman signifies the union between Christ and his church. And beloved, Jesus is only married to one wife. He is faithful to his bride. And everywhere you see polygamy in the Bible, you see unbelievable heartbreak. You see devastation and grief because this is not the way that God has designed marriage. To state it plainly, you see a messy situation, and that is true of our story this morning. We see in verse 2 the names of Elkanah's wives. His first wife's name is Hannah, and his second wife is named Penina. Hannah is his favorite wife. We're told in verse 5 that during times when they offered, traveled to offer sacrifices to God, he gave Hannah a double portion because he loved her. See, Hannah was the apple of Elkanah's eye. He was her beloved. The problem is that Hannah, Elkanah's beloved wife, the one that he delighted in, cannot have children. And the text, as you read through it, emphasizes and underscores this point. In verse 2, we read that Hannah had no children. In verse 5, and then again in verse 6, we are told that the Lord himself has closed her womb. Hannah is barren, and this is something that the Lord has done. Now, if you're reading this story, and you are familiar with the Bible, then this story sounds quite familiar. It's something that you may have seen or heard before. This is a familiar scene. You see, Hannah is not the first, and she is not the last barren woman that we see in Scripture. We think of Sarah, who was Abraham's wife. In Genesis, God promised to bless the nations nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. But think of Rebecca's, that Sarah was too old to have children. We think of Rebecca's, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. She could not have children in the, the first 20 years of her marriage because her womb was closed. We think of Rachel, who was the, the beloved wife of Jacob. Her womb was closed, and she could not have children. 
We think of Manoah's wife in in Judges chapter 13. We read in verse 2 that she was barren and could not have children. Think of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. We are told there that she is an elderly woman and she is barren and could not have children. You see, Hannah shares in what one writer calls a fellowship of barrenness. And in each one of these scenes in the history of redemption, we find that God opens these women's wombs and they give birth to individuals who play a significant role in the history of redemption. From these once barren wombs come Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samson, Samuel, and later John the Baptist. It is to say that God's plan of redemption moves forward through this fellowship of barrenness. That these new acts of redemption all begin in the same place. They begin in a place of emptiness. And what is true of Hannah physically is also true of Israel spiritually. Israel at this point in her life is spiritually barren. As we heard last week, the period of the judges was a period of idolatry and and moral degradation. Israel seemed to have no spiritual life in her. Israel is empty. Again, every new act of redemption begins in a place of emptiness. It begins often in places of spiritual barrenness. And friends, this teaches us something about how our God chooses to work. Our God is one who can bring life to a place of emptiness, that our God doesn't need anything to work with in order to accomplish his plans of redemption. What did God have to work with when he spoke creation into existence? What did God have to to work with when when he brought life into the wombs of these women? What did God have to, to work with when he placed his son in the womb of a virgin? What did God have to work with when he raised his life, the body of his lifeless son up from the dead? Beloved, God doesn't need anything to work with in order to accomplish his purposes. And this should encourage us because our limitless God is able to use our very limited resources to accomplish his purposes and glorify himself. That as we heard Ebby say, that when human ingenuity fails, that when our resources and strength come to an end, that, that when we are at the end of ourselves and without hope, God is still able to work. That when we are at our weakest and at our lowest, that when God, that's those moments when God loves to, to stretch forth his hand and bring glory to himself. One of my favorite passages, or I guess scenes in the Bible, is that scene where Jesus takes the the lunch of a little boy and who has five loaves and two fish, and he uses that to spread a feast uh, for God, for all the people who are there. And it's so much food that they end up leaving satisfied and with leftovers. Friends, God can use our little cans of sardines and our box of cornbread to, to exalt himself, can't he? That our God can use even the, the most weakest of things to bring glory to himself and to bring life where there is none. That's what this familiar scene teaches us this morning. But we not only see a familiar scene, we see a faithful servant in Hannah. We find that Hannah models for us faithfulness in the midst of a very discouraging 
and distressing, distressing situation. And that brings us to our second point, our second heading, a faithful servant. So again, we are told that Hannah, the beloved wife of Elkanah, cannot have children. And the narrator makes it clear that this is something that the Lord has chosen to do. In ancient Israel, to be one who could not have children was to be one who was cursed. That there was a certain social stigma that was associated with childlessness. And even more than that, I don't think it's a stretch to say, and I don't want to over-spiritualize the text, because I think that Hannah simply wants it to be a mother. She wanted a child that she could hold and care for. She wanted a child that she could raise. She wanted her family to be complete. It is likely that because Hannah could not have children, that is when her husband Elkanah found another woman who could have children. It appears that that Elkanah married Hannah first, and then when she couldn't have children, he went out and found another wife. Again, this is similar to what Abraham did with Sarah, where he took uh, Sarah's servant Hagar and had a child with her. So this is why we are then introduced to Penina. Penina is not the beloved wife, but she is the wife who can have children. She has and is able to do what Hannah could not do. And the text suggests that this woman, woman had multiple children. Penina seems to be having Penina as often as the seasons come and go. And we learn that Penina made sure that Hannah knew this as well. We are told that she reminded Hannah of this on a consistent basis, that Hannah may be the beloved wife, but she is the wife who cannot have kids. She may be loved by Elkanah, but she is not able to give Elkanah what he really wants. We read in verses 6 and 7 that Penina was Hannah's rival, that she provoked Hannah grievously in order to irritate her. And this takes place, according to verse 7, year by year. This is, this is saying that this, this situation took place over a, a span of years, and it appears that it primarily took place during times of worship. Because the text tells us that this took place whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord. A minister by the name of Del Ralph Davis commenting on this story, he imagines how uh, the exchanges between Hannah and Penina went about. He pictures them all in a, a family room together around dinner time. And Penina says to her children, now, Do all you children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. One of the kids blurts out, Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Penina responds, Oh, yes, dear. She wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had more kids or any children? The child interrupts and says, doesn't daddy want Miss Hannah to have children? And Penaya responds, oh yes, daddy really would love for Miss Hannah to have children, but she cannot have children because the Lord closed her womb. And then after those painful words, Penaya tells Hannah, guess what, I'm, I'm pregnant again. Friends, imagine that goes on year after year after year after year. 
It appears on a certain occasion that all of this was simply too much for Hannah, so she weeps and refuses to eat. That Hannah is at such a low point that the only food that she is consuming is her tears. And this all, of course, took place at the house of the Lord during times of worship. That this took place in the place where joy and hope should reign supreme. It is is in the house of God where Hannah experiences only distress. We see that Hannah's tears and and lack of eating appear to catch the attention of her husband, Elkanah, and he says to her in verse 8, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your soul heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I have a confession to make this morning. Uh, if you were to peer into the Haynes household, you would notice that there have been several occasions in my marriage where my wife Haley will bring something to me and tell me about something that she is experiencing. And oftentimes I try to empathize with her and maybe pretend to be a little bit more profound than I actually am. And what I think is going to be the wisest thing that is going to fix her situation turns out to be the most unhelpful thing. It turns out to be something that did not bring her any nourishment or joy. And I don't know if this is particularly a husband problem, uh, but it's my problem. And we see that Brother Elkina has the same problem here in this text. He responds by basically saying, babe, ain't I enough for you? He effectively makes this situation about himself. Again, friends, I'm, I'm not a marriage counselor, but don't do that. If your spouse is having a problem, do not make the, the problem about yourself. So Hannah cannot have children. Her husband's wife has several children and is rubbing it into her face, and her husband is of very little help, and all of this causes Hannah great anguish. Verse 10 tells us that she was deeply distressed. In verse 15, she describes herself as one who is troubled in spirit. Verse 16, she says that she speaks out of her great anxiety and vexation. But I want you to notice what Hannah does in all of this. That after the sacrificial meal is over, she leaves from her place at the seat of the table and she heads to the house of the Lord with Eli the priest watching, who we'll talk about in a, in a moment. And according to verse 10, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Where does Hannah go in this extremely difficult situation? Where does she turn in her distress in time of need? Beloved, she goes to the Lord in prayer. In verse 12, it says that she prays before the Lord, meaning that she is praying before the the very face of God. When she had nowhere else to go, when she had no one else to turn to, when she was overwhelmed and filled with sorrow, she, according to verse 15, pours out her soul before the Lord. What a beautiful way to describe prayer. Pouring out your soul before the Lord. You see, Hannah's not pretending that things are all good. She's not seeking to be dignified in her prayers. No, she is bearing the fullness of her soul to the Lord, her tears being prayers of their own. Psalm chapter 6, verse 8 
we are reminded by King David that God hears the sounds of our tears. We read later in Psalm 56 verse 8 that even then he keeps our tears in a bottle. Beloved, our God allows us, and even more than that, commands us, and even more than that, invites us to bring our griefs, our sorrows, our discouragement and disappointments to him in prayer. You see, many people get overwhelmed by the tears of others. But over time, it it becomes uncomfortable for them to bear. But that is not the case with our God. That we can for us. Verse 11 gives us the contents of Hannah's prayer. Take a look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Notice, that first, notice first that Hannah identifies God as the Lord of hosts. This phrase is it's typically used in times of battle. It's declaring that the Lord is the Lord of armies. It's a statement concerning his power. It speaks of his universal rule, and this is the God that Hannah prays to. This is the one that she chooses to bring her situation to, and as she does this, she simply asks that the Lord would look upon the affliction of his servant. She directly quotes an Old Testament scripture, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where God tells Moses that he has seen the affliction of his people in Egypt. It's as if Hannah is saying, Lord, look upon the affliction of your people when, when they were enslaved in Egypt. And when you free them from Egypt, please do the same thing for me and give me a son. Look upon me just as you looked upon Israel when she needed deliverance. Do you see what Hannah is doing as she prays to the Lord? That as she bears her soul to the Lord, as she lays out all of the difficult things that she is facing, as she is pleading with God, she is begging God based upon his character. She's begging God based upon who he has revealed himself to be. She recalls what God has done in the past and asked him to do it again in the present. Even in her distress, she remembers what is true about God. Friends, this is why we emphasize the importance of a big God theology here at Redeemer. This is why we emphasize doctrine so much, particularly what we believe about God, because only a big God who is sovereign and mighty, only one who can look down upon the affliction of his people, it is only a strong God who can carry you through the most difficult of situations. See, Hannah doesn't lean upon her experience. She leans upon what she knows about God and what he has revealed himself to be. Her faithfulness to God is displayed displayed in her plea to God. And in her prayer, she makes a vow. She says, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you and no razor shall touch his head. See, Hannah's making what is called a Nazarite vow. If you flip over to your Bible, you could do that later. In Numbers chapter 6, we learn what the Nazarite vow is. But in essence, it's a vow of 
total separation or total consecration to the service of the Lord. Normally, this takes place in specific periods of time, but Hannah says that I will, I will give Samuel to you for the, the rest of his life. But, but Hannah, is import, it's important to, to ask this question that as Hannah gives uh, Samuel to the Lord, is Hannah seeking to bargain with God? She's saying, if you do this, then I'll do this. I don't think that's what Hannah is doing in our story. I think Hannah is so consumed with God and with his glory and with his purposes and plans that what she wanted even more than a son is that she wanted a son who would honor and serve and belong to the Lord. Do you see that, that selflessness in Hannah's prayer? She mentions that she is a servant three times in prayer. She's offering to, to forego the, the joys of parenting. She's offering to, to give up the new status that she would receive if she was able to have children. She's giving all of that up and saying, Lord, give me a son and he'll be yours. He'll, he'll be yours to you both in your kingdom. And this, I think, predicting examples for us, both a compelling and convicting example for Christian parents. Parents, what do you desire most for your children? What, what dreams do you have for your kids? Hannah teaches us that the chief aim for Christian parents, the, the chief prayer and aim that we have as we have kids is that our kids would be fully committed to the Lord and useful to the God in his kingdom, that they would be successful in the eyes of God rather than in the eyes of man. Above all, Hannah wants to be a faithful servant in the kingdom of God. And after Hannah prays this prayer, she, after she pours out her soul before the Lord, verse 18 tells us that she went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see, after Hannah pleads with the Lord, as she recalls his character, as she lays everything at his feet, she gets up in trust, knowing that the Lord has heard her. She receives this blessing from Eli the priest who tells her in verse 17 to go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And Hannah does just that. She wipes her tears off of her face. She's no longer fasting. She slides to the table. She eats her food and she leaves in peace trusting the Lord. In verses 19 to 20, we read that, that the Lord was, was faithful and answers her prayer. Verses 19 to 20 says that Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her in due time. Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked him from the Lord. God answered the prayers of his faithful servant. He opened her womb, and he gave her a child named Samuel, who will also, as we see later, will be a faithful servant in the house of his God. We've seen a familiar scene We've seen a faithful servant, but lastly and briefly, we'll look at a faithful priest, a faithful priest. Another character that we are introduced in this opening section of the book of 1 Samuel is Eli the priest. We are told that Eli has two sons, Hophni 
and Phineas, who are mentioned in verse 3, and we'll learn a little bit later in the story more about these sons, but 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 12 tells us that these two sons were, who are priests were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. And Eli, their father, while he is not as bad as his two sons, it is still true that he was also an unfaithful priest. And we see that on display in his, as he interacts with Hannah in this story. Verse 9 tells us that when Hannah headed to the temple of the Lord, Eli the priest was sitting next to the, the doorpost of the temple. And as Hannah pours out her soul before the Lord, Eli was looking on. And take a look how this plays out in verses 12 to 15. As she, being Hannah, continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So in this moment of, of Hannah's vulnerability, as she is pouring out her soul before the Lord, as she is being fervent in her prayers, and the priest looks on, and he, in a real sense, condemns her for it. That the priest, who should have known what fervent prayer looked like, found this so unfamiliar that he confused her with a drunken woman. Imagine, perhaps maybe on a weekday, you come into this sanctuary and you are, say, at this altar, bending knee, and you are just laying out your soul before the Lord. You are weeping and crying and you are begging the Lord for mercy. And then I walk up to you and tap you on your shoulder and say, hey, bro, we don't do that here and send you on your way and say, hey, you are in sin. You, there is no reason for you to be doing that here. You would rightly condemn me for pastoral malpractice. You would say that this man has no idea what it looks like to be fervent in prayer. You would realize that I am one who is not able to empathize with you. You see, when, Hannah, when Eli condemns Hannah, he is failing in his priestly duties. He should have sympathized with her. He should have provided comfort, not condemnation. He should have prayed for her. He should have encouraged her in her weakness. Now, Eli is an unfaithful priest. And as you move through the book of 1 Samuel, you'll see that the priesthood in Israel is corrupt and ungodly. And this eventually leads God to bring judgment upon the house of Eli and the priesthood of Eli. Because not only will we see in 1 Samuel that God's people need a king, we also see that God's people need a faithful priest. You see, Hannah needed a priest who was gentle. She needed a priest who was able to sympathize with her weaknesses. She needed a priest who understood her situation. She needed a priest who was familiar with, with pouring out his soul before the Lord. She needed a priest who would pray for her when she could not pray for herself. She needed someone that was everything that Eli was not. And beloved, the priest that she needed 
is the priest that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That where Eli failed and where Eli was unfaithful, Jesus does everything that Eli does not do. That as our great high priest, Jesus Christ sacrifices not a lamb or a goat, but he sacrifices his very self. It's a sacrifice that is received without spot or blemish because he is the the perfect God-man who lived a, a righteous life and it is acceptable before God. Because of this, you and I have been reconciled to the Lord. But not only that does God or Jesus offer himself as a sacrifice, Christ Jesus then is raised from the dead and he is ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And when he sits down, what does he do? In other words, what is Jesus doing right now in this moment while we are sitting in this room? As our great high priest, Jesus is praying for you. As our great high priest, Jesus Christ sits at the the right hand of God the Father and he intercedes for God's people. That what Eli failed to do for Hannah is what Jesus never ceases to do for us. We sang it earlier, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever intercedes for me, that when you are overwhelmed, When you are discouraged and in despair, when you are dealing with the most heartbreaking of circumstances, when you feel like even those closest to you does not understand you or are unhelpful like Elkanah, take great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ is praying for you. So friends, we've seen a familiar scene, we've seen a faithful servant, and both of these realities point us to our faithful high priest who never ceases to pray for his people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, even as we pray now, we take great comfort in the fact that we are not praying alone. That as we lift our voices to you and plead for mercy, Sitting at your right hand is our Savior and High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is praying for us even now. And we thank you so much for this this precious gift that we often very much forget about. So, Father, we ask that you would use this word that we have just heard and you would encourage us in our walk with you and uphold us in the day of trouble. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.